You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Have you guys been thinking more about meals since we started doing this? I hope so. I have. I, like, it's very easy, as I said the first week, uh, it's very easy in our cultural context where we're squeezing meaning out of everything um, for us to forget that meals are more than just fuel. Food is more than just fuel. Um, meals are a blessing and gift from God to be used for his glory, all right? And so that's what we see in the ministry of Jesus. I've, um, I've been pondering this and noticed that actually uh, in Christian community, we, we probably do more of this than uh, people outside of Christian community. We had 20-something people at our place on on Friday night, and it really, like they said over and over again, this is amazing, what you're doing, this is amazing, like having all these people around and just, and just providing stuff and not expecting us to bring stuff, and like all of this, these acts of grace are to some people extraordinary, um, but lest we start patting ourselves on the back, I think we should see that this is just what Christians do and have always done, and so this is a call, among other things, a call for us to take up that ministry that gracious, merciful, compassionate ministry of meals. I witnessed this um, this past week in a pretty extraordinary way, in a really unsoughtful way. I try and once a week go on a good hike uh, because um, I I just love the natural world and always have done. I always wanted to be a zoologist earlier in my life. I wanted to be a park ranger, so I just love that. Um, and, uh, and so I try and do that. I like to go to uh, Lerderdurg State Forest and just get lost. And um, so I did that on, on my day off on Wednesday. My rhythm is kind of like during the work week, God ministers to me through his word. And then on my day off, he just ministers to me powerfully through his creation, right? The, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I just go out there and soak it up. Anyway, I was on my way back down from that, the circuit hike around the, the ridge in Lerderdurg, and I came across these two old guys, two just classic old fellas, right? And, 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 and real Ocker, Aussie, old world Melton residents. And, and, uh, and they had a little dog. And anyway, so I, I had noticed, uh, I had seen them a, f- a fair way off, and I noticed them that whoever came past they were stopping and engaging with they weren't walking they were just there for the company all right and which is a weird place to go for company because no one is ever hardly there anyway so I, I came up to them and thought oh, I'll have a chat to these guys so we got chatting and um and 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 these guys were good talkers like you know those old older guys who just know how to talk I don't have that gift most of us don't um and it's a gift that's being lost pretty quickly but those guys knew how to talk and uh anyway so we got chatting and they told me that they were local residents had been uh, always local residents of Melton and Bacchus Marsh and they were telling me a little bit about what that whole area was like when they were kids and they told me this one story which really struck me and was unexpected given the stereotype that I had those two old guys in and they told me that once they had come to Lerderdurg State Park and they had gone for a walk and they had heard this ruckus in the, in the, out in the bush, just chaos. And so they started cooeying, like, to, to, you know, try and engage with whatever was going off, uh, on in, in the bush. And then emerged from the bush 
um, these 10 people, uh, a guy and his, uh, a white guy, he said, and his Aboriginal wife, and then eight brown kids, all right, and all bare feet, um, just doing their own thing in the bush. And, and at this point, I, th- I started to think, oh, no, this is going to be, this guy's going to turn out to be some kind of right-wing guy who chased them off with a rifle or something like that. That's, that's where I had him pegged. And instead of that, what I heard was this story of how he had gotten to know these people. It turns out they had come down from Darwin. They were travelling in a car, just jammed into the, the car, these ten people. And that they had tried to find lodgings in the local area but had been refused because she was an Aboriginal. And this man, in hearing that, had, had pity on them and without consulting his wife, just invited them to come and stay with him. Come around for dinner, he said. And so they did. And then they stayed. And then they stayed. And then it started to become a bit of a problem. But it was just around logistics. It wasn't about his heart for these people. And it really struck me that that was a a wonderfully Christ-like thing to do. And so I said to him, you know, that was... What you did was very Christ-like. That was... you, You did what Jesus would have done. And he kind of said, well, I don't know about that. And... But I said, no, no, that's exactly what you did. That's exactly what Jesus was all about. He, he saw those people who had been ostracized, those people who had been refused entry, uh, and he embraced them and extended God's love towards them. And he used these situations as demonstrations of God's heart for the poor the marginalised, the sick, the lame, the impure, tax collectors and sinners. And so that's why the accusation is thrown at him in Luke 7, that he's a glutton, that he's a drunkard, that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because of the way that he ate and drank and embraced the people who are otherwise excluded. And so we've seen this over and over again. These meals that Jesus has in Luke's gospel, indeed in, in any gospel you want to look at, they, they operate at at least three levels. All right? There's the surface level where just eating and drinking is good. If you're thinking today, should I eat and drink or, or, or should I not? The answer is yes, you should. I'm all for fasting. I think everyone should, should always be in, in sort of practicing a rhythm of fasting, but the church has always spent Sunday feasting. There are no Sunday fasts on the church calendar because the recognition that because Jesus is raised from the dead, because Sunday is the Lord's day, we ought to, in celebration of that, do what the Lord did, eat, drink, celebrate God's goodness and grace. And so the the meals are operating at that level. Eating and drinking is just good and we should enjoy it and celebrate it because it's a gift of God. And then there are also these meals are opportunities for Jesus to show us that God's heart is for the kind of people who are otherwise forgotten in his day. God loves prostitutes. God forgives tax collectors and sinners. And he welcomes them to his table. Jesus demonstrated it, and that reveals God's heart. What is God like? Look at Jesus. And so there's that deeper level, and then there's an even deeper level. These these meals are illustrations. They're metaphors, right? They're, They're pictures 
of God's kingdom, what God's kingdom is like. That's why Isaiah, 800 years before, was saying the kingdom of God is like a feast with the best meat and the best wine. That's what it's like. And so those three things are are operating and in in operation in all of these meals, and particularly today in this passage, we're going to see all three levels revealed for us in this passage. And so let's get into it, all right? My first point this morning, I've got three points, all right? First one is what it looks like to eat under the law. Let's take a look at that in verse 1 to 6. It says, One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could find no answer to these things. First thing I want you to notice about this meal, remember we're focusing in on the meals themselves. The thing to notice about this meal is the guest list. The guest list is very typical for the ruling elite in Jesus' day. These Pharisees who are not only well-to-do but well-thought of and respected, the guest list is very typical of their meal with the exception of Jesus who they don't know what to do with. And there's a sense here that maybe he's invited so that they can get him. They can pin him, all right? They're watching him closely. But the guest list is Pharisees and experts in the law. They're the kind of people who are qualified to eat under the law. They're the kind of people who are qualified to get an invite to these auspicious meals. They're qualified because they are obedient. They are law keepers. They are pure They are not the kind of people that Jesus has been eating with up to this point, tax collectors and sinners. So you remember, and this has come up again and again, and this is really good to have it just locked into your mind as a a kind of autocorrect for Pharisee. Don't think guys in dark cloaks twisting their moustaches trying to figure out how to end the world, right? They're, They're not the villains in the gospel stories. The Pharisees are zealous for the kingdom of God. They are zealous to see the kingdom of God established on the earth. They're zealous to see God move through them as his chosen people. The way that they think it's going to happen is where they fall off base. The way they think God's kingdom is going to come about is that this is their motto. A transformed Israel will transform the world. Now that's the kind of motto you could have over a church, right? Nothing wrong with that. A transformed Israel is going to bless the world. They're going to lead the world into the kingdom of God. They're going to transform the world. Now, the mechanism that they have for that to happen is where they start falling off base. They they see that transformation of Israel will come through obedience to the law and through the, the maintenance of purity among God's people. So, You need to know the law, not just God's law, but all of the laws that have been added to God's law by people like these, these guys, religious leaders. You need to know that law and you need to obey that law. 
that in itself will purify you, and then you can do the, the kind of gardening work of purifying the people of God by excluding those who aren't pure, by excluding those who do not know and will not obey God's law. So what you end up with is Pharisees, teachers of the law, right, good religious Jews, trying really hard to obey all of these hundreds of laws and then ostracizing people who don't fit that picture. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and in this case, a sick man. This is why things get really awkward really quick at this meal. Because at this point, they have the meal as they want it. Pharisees, experts in the law, purity, the right kind of hand washing, right? all of that is just nice and neat. They're very obsessive compulsive about this stuff. That's, it's all as it should be. And then this guy walks in. Remember, rich people's homes are open to the public. They have sort of a semi-public area facing onto the street. That's how the prostitute got in a couple of weeks ago. Here we have a guy swollen with fluid. He's, in some translations, he's got dropsy, right? He's, he's got edema. There are parts of his body that are all swollen up, and that makes him unclean. That makes him unclean. That makes him impure. That makes him not the kind of person that these guys want to have around. He's not on the guest list. He hasn't got an invite. So you've got that. Remember, they're all about obedience to the law and purity. So now you've got an unclean, impure man. And, oh, it's just a perfect setup, right? It's the Sabbath. So you've got impurity and you've got law-keeping. You keep, if you're going to keep the law, you don't lift a finger on the Sabbath. To this day, if you go to Israel on the Sabbath, the elevators don't work because that would require you to push a button, which is work, not to be done on the Sabbath. So you've got this perfect storm, an impure person and an opportunity for Jesus, Jesus either to keep the law or to break it. We're not going to get into the healing itself, but here's the big idea. All through this passage, Jesus is going to confront head-on this pharisaical understanding of who's invited to God's banquet, who's welcome at the table. He's going to challenge it head-on. This is what Robert Karras, the, the scholar, says about Jesus in Luke's gospel. He says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. The way Jesus ate and what it said and revealed both about the, the ruling religious elite and about who God is and his heart for people, that got him killed. All right, so there's, there's what it's like to eat under the law. It's all about who you are. It's all about how pure you are. It's all about what you bring to the table. That's a good phrase. I don't have that written down. It's all about what you bring to the table, right? That's eating under the law. Number two, flipping the guest list. 
Listen to this, verse 7 to 11. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited, right? So he's telling it to the approved ones. He's telling it to the qualified ones. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come to you and say, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You then will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we read that and we might just say, well, yeah, of course. That's just manners. Remembering Jesus, remember Jesus' teaching is operating at a couple of different levels here. It is operating at the surface level of just gracious hospitality, but there's more to it than that, as we're going to see by the end. But even just at the surface level, we say, yeah, well, yeah, of course. But just be humble, be gracious. You're the host. Take the lower place. But we, we need to understand, and maybe we can't without really trying hard, that, that this, what Jesus just said there, is massively countercultural. To, to the extent that people may have never heard some teaching like that before. Incredibly countercultural. You will find cultures today where that would still be massively countercultural. But in Jesus' context, in the first century, under Roman rule in the ancient Near East, that idea that you would humble yourself in any way, that you wouldn't take advantage of your standing in the community, that idea is so foreign that this would have landed like a thunderclap and a real slap in the face to these guys that he's talking to. Let me just quote a New Testament scholar to, to, to try and explain some of the context here. Joel Green, the Gospel of Luke, he says, central to the political st- stability of the empire was the ethics of reciprocity, a gift and obligation system that tied every person from the emperor in Rome to the child in the most distant province into an intricate web of social relations. Expectations of reciprocity were naturally extended to the table. It's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's reciprocity, right? The, the only people you need to entertain are the kind of people who can pay you back. Why on earth would you have someone round to dinner who couldn't pay you back? This is the, the whole system of economics in the first century is about reciprocity. What can you do for me? Then we'll talk about what we're going to do together. So of course you're not going to get the dropsy guy to come around. Of course you're not going to get the blind, the lame, the crippled to come around for dinner. What are they going to do for you? They're as good as dead. Jesus, in 
in this teaching, though it might sound to us like, yeah, well, that's kind of what you should do as a host. That's only because we stand on the foundation of Christian ethics established over the last 2,000 years. But it began with a thunderclap in Jesus' own ministry. Tim Chester, this is what he says about it. The table fellowship of Jesus with its ethic of grace rather than reciprocity was creating a new countercultural society in the midst of the empire. It began then and spread as the church spread, as the church took up Jesus' ethic of humility over reciprocity. So all of that is well and good and all of that is meaningful and all of that had an effect on society that we can't even, probably can't even estimate. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus isn't done turning cultural expectations upside down. Right? He's going to go further and then further again. Jesus is going to do more here than just teach on the, the fact that we should be nice to outcasts, right? That we should humble ourselves in, in the midst of our, of our friends. He's not just teaching that we should be good Christians, that we should have good manners. That's not his point. What he's doing here is flipping the guest list, not just for the meal, but for the kingdom of God. read a couple more verses verse 12 to 14 he also said to the one who had invited him when you give a lunch or a dinner don't invite your friends your brothers or sisters your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back right don't do what everyone expects everyone to be doing all the time don't do the most normal thing in the world don't play that reciprocity game Don't invite them because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, right? The contrary, flipping it upside down. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Why does he mention there the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind? Why does he particularly mention them? Not just because they weren't invited to the dinner and he wants them to be invited to the dinner. Right? He doesn't just mention them because they weren't invited to dinner parties. He mentions them because they weren't invited to the kingdom party. As far as these guys were concerned, those people, poor, lame, blind, maimed, blind, they weren't just not invited to their place for dinner, they weren't going to be invited to heaven. 
Let me throw another scholar at you, Craig Evans. This is what he says. Most Jewish authorities in Jesus' day said no one who was blind, crippled, or lame could enter the temple. Right, so you weren't welcome at church. And you weren't welcome at church because you weren't welcomed by God at all. You weren't welcomed into his presence at all. He goes on, documents from Qumran show that the Essene sect believed that the poor, the, blame, the blind, the, the crippled and the lame wouldn't participate in the messianic banquet. That is the new creation, the kingdom party. They weren't invited. Why? Because they were impure, because they were, the, their state revealed something about what God thought about them. They were to be rejected. They were to be excluded for the sake of the purity of God's people. Which is why Jesus then moves from a, a, a temporal, a being consumed with temporal things, right? Your dinner party this week. Why then moves to a parable about the messianic banquet, the kingdom party. All right, last point, eating in the kingdom. Oops. Eating in the kingdom. I'm going to read this parable that Jesus says, and I'm not going to do a whole lot of explanation. I just want Jesus to speak to us, all right? So hear, hear this parable like you're sitting, like you're reclining at the table with him. Verse 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, uh, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then, in anger... The master of the house told his servant, go out quickly. Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. You see what he's saying? 
not only are the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame, not only those who occupy the alleys and the streets, not only those who are outcasts of, of civil society, not only are they invited, but they're the only ones who accept the invitation. Why? Why are they the only ones who accept the invitation? Because they're the only ones who see their need for grace. They're the only ones who are eager to receive something from God, from the Master. That's why. Friends, if we have truly received the gospel, this is where we turn it on you. If you have truly received the gospel of God's grace, if you were able to sing that first song with all sincerity, this is amazing grace. If you've truly received the gospel, then you know who you are in this passage. You know who you are. Who are we? Spiritually speaking, this is who we are. We are the poor with nothing to offer for our salvation. We're the crippled made powerless by sin. We're the blind, unable to see the truth. And we're the lame, unable to come to God on our own. If you've truly received the gospel, you know that's who you are. And so what Jesus said in that magnificent sermon on the mount which itself turned civilization upside down to this day what Jesus said in the sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 verse 3 is true he said blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs do you know this morning that you are the poor in spirit do you know that you have nothing to offer for your salvation. If you know that and you're humble enough to embrace that, then Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is a place at the messianic banquet. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the biggest barriers between us and receiving God's grace in the gospel is our pride. We don't want the humiliation of saying, I'm poor. I'm crippled, I'm blind, I'm lame. God, help me. I need your grace. 
Much more often, we want to deal with God on the terms of first century Rome. Let's have some reciprocity here. I will accept forgiveness contingent on the fact that I can pay it back. Why? Because I can. I'm not like those guys, the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. I'm not like them. I'm spiritually able. So let's deal on these terms. God, you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. And on these terms, will I take up a seat? And Jesus says, if that's your attitude, you're not coming. You're invited, but you're not coming. God, help us to see our poverty this morning so that we might, maybe for the first time, understand amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because by nature and choice, by nature and choice, Lord, we're proud. By nature and choice, we want to be the Pharisee. We want to have arrived. We want to be qualified for the meal. We want to refer to our CV of spiritual accomplishments. And on that basis, we will never come to your table. So Lord, God help us. Please reduce us this morning. Give us the kind of humility that is necessary to see our deep need for your forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and grace. Oh Lord, that's not something that can be achieved by some guy standing up the front. That is a work of your spirit. Nothing less. So please, work now. Even as we stand and sing your praises, Holy Spirit, please be at work. Maybe some of us need to kneel for the first time as we sing. Maybe some of us need to come forward to pray and repent of our self-righteousness. Lord, whatever needs to happen, do it. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.